We're uh, going to be looking today at the post-exilic books, and you may already be wondering, what is a post-exilic book? Uh, and it is, uh, or it, they are, plural, those books that were written uh, after the exile when the Israelite people went back to Jerusalem. There are three books of history that particularly pertain to this period, and there are three prophetic books that particularly pertain to this period. We're going to look at those in just a moment, but I want to uh, give you an overview of God's uh, plan to date, because some of you have been wondering, what have I been up to? <laughs> are we doing a book study? Are we doing Old Testament survey? What is it that I've been doing? And, and I want to tell you, it's neither one of those things. Um, what I want us to see is not so much uh, what's in every single book, uh, nor do I want us to uh, particularly survey the entire Old Testament and cover all the books. But I want us to see how God has had a plan from the very beginning to rescue the human race and to bring lost people back to Himself. God has a great love for human beings. We are uh, the only creatures on this planet made in His image and in His likeness. We are the only ones with a mind that functions uh, the way ours does in, in a rational, logical, uh, reasonable fashion, at least it's supposed to. Uh, we are the only ones that have the, the deep emotive content of heart and soul together that uh, are very much like our gods. And we experience uh, the same kinds of feelings that he has, though not to the same extent. And uh, we are those who have a free will. We can make choices and, and decisions regarding uh, one another, regarding our future. And God made us like himself, that he might have fellowship with us and that we might uh, glory in him and walk together with him. And when Adam and Eve rebelled against that desire of God in the Garden of Eden, God began at that time to seek human beings and bring them back to himself. And if we could get in our minds a kind of an overview of biblical history in God's plan, uh, we would first of all look at creation in the fall as the beginning of it all. And then following a, a period of, uh, shall we say, proliferation of the human race where it began to spread and move around, at least in that Middle Eastern region, that people uh, became more and more wicked. And, and God saw that their hearts were evil continually all day long. 
There are things that went on before the flood that have been specifically hidden from our knowledge that uh, God just doesn't even want us to know about because people had gone so far down the pit of darkness and sin and rebellion. And uh, they were into horrific things and uh, they were into communication with demons and evil angels and And the whole human race was mired in this rebellion to God. And God brought a flood. And then following the flood, he drove people apart intentionally at the Tower of Babel so that they would not be able to pool their resources and their thought processes to begin that demise all over again. As a consequence, it has taken uh, several thousand years before we're approaching that level again. And then God called a man. Uh, God was preparing a people that would ultimately usher forth the coming of Jesus Christ to this earth to redeem us. And it began with a man by the name of Abraham who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Our relationship with God is always based on faith. And Abraham is considered the father of the faithful. He is the one who put his trust and hope in God and received the promise that through him all the nations of the earth should be blessed. Now, Abraham was about, if you look at human history, and I know that some of you are going to do a double take here, but we've been around just approximately 6,000 years. 2,000 years from now back until the time of Christ. Another 2,000 years from the time of Christ to Abraham. And then another 2,000 years from the time of Abraham back to creation, or the uh, beginning of mankind. And Abraham is right kind of in the middle of that whole Old Testament period. If you could kind of remember these timeline hooks, it'll help you to put it uh, together in a construction of God's unfolding purposes. Abraham received the promise about 2,000 years before Christ. Joseph was the one who came out of Egypt, uh, or who went down to Egypt to spare the people. And it was from Joseph that the Israelites began to grow and multiply. As God said to Abraham, they'll be like the sand of the seashore. Uh, And they began to multiply And ultimately, under Moses, they followed him out of Egypt during the Exodus. Joshua led them forward into the land of Canaan, the promised land. And it was specifically for the purpose of the Exodus and the land of Canaan that God wanted to teach his people more about his character. Until the time of Moses, there is no record of any recorded scripture. 
But as the law was given through Moses and written down and expanded to include not only the law, but the book of Genesis and and possibly Job as well, that God began to reveal his character in the law as he taught his people, first of all, who he was, and the first four commandments relate to the person and nature of God, and then taught them how they were to treat one another, because that's the way God is. God is a covenant-keeping God. Uh, God is uh, not a thief. Uh, God uh, is a God who does not murder in the sense of just ending human life without purpose or cause. Uh, All of these things that are listed in the Ten Commandments was the revelation of God's character to His people. He wanted to prepare a people that would understand what His nature was like. But more than that, He wanted them to understand that they could not keep that law apart from His power and His Spirit. And that's an important part of understanding the giving of the law, as Paul writes in Galatians, that it was a schoolmaster intended to bring us to Christ. The more you understand the law, and the more you understand the character of God, the more you realize you fall short of it. We all fall short of it. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there's no way that in our own flesh, by our own strength and our own power, that we can please God and keep the law. And so, as you look at how God is unfolding His plan, as one person said, before you can get people saved, you have to get them lost. A person who does not think they have any need for Christ will never trust Christ. You have to bring them to an understanding of how far they have fallen short before they will turn to God in repentance and recognize their need for a Savior. And so God gave the law. He taught Abraham to follow him by faith, but then he introduced the law as a means of showing what his character was like, and with it, He provided a way to offer sacrifice and for repentance and to have cleansing through the Passover lamb. And he began to prefigure the coming of Jesus Christ, who would be the lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, who would give his life on Calvary, on the cross for our sin, because we need a savior. We need a covering for our sin. We have fallen short. But we also need the power of God in order to keep His character. In fact, we need the power of God to demonstrate His character through us. So Paul says in Romans 8.1, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, through our own ability, God Himself did, coming in Jesus Christ in the nature 
of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in his body that the righteous requirements of the law could be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And all of this is a part of God's overarching plan to prepare us to understand our need for a Savior. And so Joshua led them into Canaan, and then... (laughs) Following Canaan, in their disobedience, they ended up in that chaotic mess of the period of the judges. uh, Bouncing back and forth between rebellion and crying out for help and rebellion and crying out for help and God raising up judges uh, to deliver them. When you recognize how much like them we are. You don't find the people in the book of Judges so much saying something like this, God, we have fallen short of your glory. We have sinned against you. Please forgive us. We don't care what happens to us, but restore our relationship. No, what you find them saying is, God, we're suffering. We don't like our lives the way they are. Come deliver us. Come fix us. Come bring us help. And then as soon as they get help, they're back at it again. And this went on throughout the period of the judges. Until finally Samuel comes into the picture as kind of the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. And he anoints Saul to be king, and then David, and then Solomon, and then the kingdom, as we saw uh, a week ago, is divided. If you'll put another timeline hook in there, that David lived about a thousand years before Christ. So what do you have? You have a period of creation to perhaps the flood of about a thousand years or a little more or less. And then you have Abraham about 2,000 years. And then you have David about 1,000 years before Christ. And then you have that period of the kings. And ultimately, after Solomon, the kingdom divided, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And you know from our study a week ago that as they began... Uh, to uh, follow other gods in the northern kingdom, God gave them over to capture by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., 700 years before Christ. And then finally, the southern kingdom, which was David's line, that uh, never departed the throne. Always someone from David's bloodline was on the throne according to the promise of God in the southern kingdom, Judah uh, and Benjamin. And in 586, the Babylonians carried them away captive to Babylon. So, as we... Oops. There we go. As we look at 
that period of captivity of some 70 years in Babylon. Uh, During that uh, period of time and following, there are three books in the Old Testament that pertain to that time in Israel's history. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther uh, occur there. What's going on with my thing? Well, we don't need that one. Oops. There we go. Doesn't matter who is doing it, it comes up a mess. (laughs) Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther uh, are the historical books that come during that period. And along with them are prophets that come after the exile, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, I'm not going to be going over the prophets in any great depth. I actually had a thought uh, this weekend that perhaps um, January and February might be a good time to consider Isaiah in some detail. And uh, there are 66 chapters in Isaiah, and if we read a couple of chapters a day, We could read through Isaiah in two months, and uh, we could read one of the greatest prophets of Israel. They're all great because they're all speaking for God, but Isaiah is a fascinating uh, prophetic book. And um, to do it justice, uh, you would really need to spend several years in Isaiah, Uh, but uh, I'm not going to do that. But it might be a good thing to spend a few months in Isaiah and pick out some of the highlights of his. But anyway, during the actual period of the exile, Ezekiel and Daniel prophesied while they were in Babylon. And one of the things that Jeremiah had prophesied before then, and Cyrus and Isaiah as well in chapter 44 regarding uh, the future, that God called a king Cyrus by name. And he said, Cyrus will be my servant, and he will send you back to the land of Israel, to Jerusalem and Judah, and you will uh, rebuild the temple. And if you look at the map up there, you can see the distance between Jerusalem on the um, eastern side of the Mediterranean. And as it goes up and down and over and across, you end up in Babylon, which is still the same place today. Um, and they were carried off by captivity into Babylon. And God, through his prophets, said, a king by the name of Cyrus will be raised up, and he will send my people back to Jerusalem, and, and they will rebuild the temple And rebuild the walls according to his promises. And so, for example, uh, in Ezra uh, 1, verses 6, all those about them encouraged them, oops, 
Then the heads of the households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests of the Levites arose, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go back and rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All about them they were encouraged with articles of silver, gold, gold and goods, with cattle and valuables, aside that of, from all that was given as a freewill offering. Also King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Do you remember the story in Daniel about the hand that appears on the wall during a party? of um, Belshazzar, and he's, this hand is writing, and you, you recall the translation of the words, today the kingdom is torn from you. That was the son of the last king of Babylon. And that evening, the Persians came in and took over Babylon and destroyed the lineage of the Babylonians, and Cyrus became the king, the king of Persia. The Babylonians had a practice of taking all of their captured people and taking the leadership and the, the prime people away to Babylon and leaving their native land basically with just the, the peasants and farmers or whatever were left. Cyrus had exactly the opposite philosophy. He wanted to send back the people that had been displaced to their native territory and allow them to rebuild their style of worship and to rebuild their houses of worship and to reestablish their culture. And the scripture says that God put this on Cyrus' heart. And so he said to the Jews, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and I want you to rebuild the temple and I'm going to give you what you need to do it. And I'm going to give you all the uh, special articles that were robbed of the temple by the king of Babylon, and I'm going to give you funds that you need to rebuild uh, the ancient city of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple and so, so on and so forth. And so, after the 70 years, God said, I will bring you back to this land. And one of the things that I want us to pick out of that this morning is that our God is a covenant-keeping God. That He keeps His promises. And that He will always um, fulfill His word. And so, the Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem. I have one extra slide on my thing that you don't have. Interesting. 
Let me talk to you about these three books for just a moment. Have you ever wondered where Esther fit in? Esther occurred probably somewhere in the middle of Ezra. The first six chapters of Ezra deal with the early return, and then the rest of the book of Ezra deals with a second return. Somewhere in there, or perhaps before, when you read um, all the different uh, accounts of where Esther fits, uh, there are almost as many opinions as there are commentators. But Esther appears uh, somewhere in that exilic period uh, with the kings of, um, of Persia. And she is, if you, if you read the story from our viewpoint, um, it's, it's really weird, okay? But, but you have to read it within the cultural context of their viewpoint. The king wanted to add to his harem. So he did a search throughout the kingdom uh, because he had banished his one queen. He wanted to find somebody else. And so he lined up a bunch of girls and tried them all out and to see who was going to be the one that he was going to pick to be the queen. And uh, it was not a very good thing if you got to be chosen to be in the beauty pageant because if the king didn't like you, you got put in harem section B, which meant you would never see the king again or any other man. You were just done. You were over. That was your life. You live there the rest of your life. Not such a good prospect. But Esther, a young, beautiful Jewish woman, was chosen by the king to, to be uh, the one that became his favorite. Now, there's another little fact of this story that goes along with it that's kind of important. You could not appear in the king's presence without an invitation. It didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter if you were the queen or the lowliest peasant. You could not come before the king without his invitation. And meanwhile, in the course of events, there was an anti-Semitic fellow by the name of Haman who decided that he was going to come up with a scheme to destroy all of the Jews. And he was going to do that by establishing a day when the Jews would be rendered defenseless and everybody in the kingdom could have open season on the Jews. They could murder them all. And that was his plan. He was going to get rid of all the Jews. It's not the first time in history that someone has decided to annihilate the Jewish people. Uh, if Satan hates the church, he hates the Jews every bit as much. And so Esther was a Jewish girl. And her uncle, Mordecai, was also a Jewish man who became aware of this um, plot. And so he said to Esther, um, you need to do something. 
You're the queen, you need to go before the king, and you need to do something. Now, one of the things that stands out to me in this process is that it doesn't matter what kind of culture you're in, and it doesn't matter how esteemed or how denigrated women are, you can still fulfill the plans and purposes of God. Because God is not a respecter of the cultures and plans of man. But Esther was quite concerned about showing up in the king's presence and uh, without an invitation because she could be put to death. That was the penalty for barging into the king's presence. You could be put to death. But Mordecai says, who knows, but what God has not raised you up for such a time as this. And so, as she began to weigh what was going on, she decided to put her life on the line for her people and to appear before the king and to propose to him an idea that ultimately ended up in a party, and, and I'll uh, cut to the chase. Mordecai, uh, I'm sorry, Haman thought that the party was for him. He was going to be the exalted person who was going to be lifted up, and that's when he was going to make a play for killing all the Jews. And so in the midst of the party, the king says, what shall I do for the man that I desire to give special honor? And uh, it was pointed out that, you know, he should be uh, dressed in royalty and he should be given this recognition and whatever uh, his wish was would be accomplished. And Esther took that opportunity to explain that it was difficult for her to to be happy uh, when, and that was also a capital offense with the king. If you weren't happy in his presence, you could be put to death. So a lot of rules there that were pretty dire. But Esther said, there's a scheme afoot of killing all of my people and all of my countrymen and, and everyone that I come from. And so Mordecai was ultimately recognized as the one the king wanted to honor. And the king asked Esther, what's going on here? What's the problem? And she said, my people are at risk of being destroyed. And he says, who has done this thing? And she said, that wicked Haman. Now, Haman had constructed a huge gallows. And uh, he was planning uh, to um, hang Mordecai on it and get rid of all the Jews. And the king issued an edict that Haman should be hanged from his own gallows right in his front yard. And that instead, all the people of the Jews would be favored. And so the significance of Esther in this period of time is that there weren't a lot of purely Jewish people left. There were only about 4,500 
that left Jerusalem after all the sieges and the wars and everything that were living in Babylon. And maybe after a couple of generations, there were eight or 10,000. But Esther is credited by her faith with literally saving the Jewish people. She is the one that spared them from possible annihilation. And her famous line is, if I perish, I perish. And God guides the hearts of the king. Now, what about Nehemiah and Ezra? Actually, Ezra appears before um, Nehemiah. And Ezra is the one who is sent back to rebuild the temple. And under God's direction to Cyrus, Ezra goes back to Jerusalem and he lays the foundation for the walls and he begins to construct the temple. But this is very difficult because there are not that many that returned. Here is an interesting thing about the Jews in Babylon. They've been there about 70 years. So how many generations do we normally have in about 70 years? About three, right? People who are 70, if they've had children and their children have had children, well, we're grandparents by that time. And in that long period of time, they had established homes. I mean, you're not going to wait around for going back as the years pass by. So they had established homes. They had established businesses. They had built their own commerce. They were people who were well implanted within the culture and society of Babylon. So what do you think happened when the king said, you can all go back to Jerusalem? Now, think about Jerusalem. It's been abandoned. Remember who was left? Farmers and peasants and whatever. Very few people. Mixed tribes, the Samaritans, were beginning to to get involved in there. And uh, it was a, a place that did not offer much economy it would you know be like taking a cell phone business to the heart of Erie and Jaya 50 years ago uh, and uh, they don't even have towers who's going to buy your cell phone that was kind of the position the Jews were in so they kind of looked at this situation and they said well it's awfully nice of God to let us go back but who wants to go to that place So they stayed. And Ezra ended up taking a relatively small contingent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And as he began to construct the temple, the word came back to Nehemiah, who was a special servant of the king. He was the cupbearer, which by the way, is kind of like the head of the Secret Service for the president. 
Um, he didn't just bear the cup. He sipped it to see if it was poisoned. <laughs> but more than that, that was a symbolic role. He, he played security for the king. That was his primary role. And word came back to him that the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down. The gates were burned with fire. The people of Jerusalem were doing terribly. The construction of the temple was not going well. And as Nehemiah got this report, his heart began to break for his people. And when you look at uh, Nehemiah's experience, as he considered the, the problem with Jerusalem, he became very sad. And one of the things that stands out to me about Nehemiah is he was a man of prayer. And he began to beseech the Lord and to repent on the part of the Jewish people and to ask God to have mercy and compassion and to forgive them. Uh, He actually took on the sins of the Jewish people in a sense for himself and asked God to forgive them and And give them deliverance. And he was so burdened by this uh, situation in Jerusalem. That one day as he was appearing before the king. Remember what I said? You can't be sad in the presence of the king. He appeared before the king and he you could just see it in his face. He looked sad. And the king said, what is this going on with you? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Fortunately, Nehemiah had a relationship with the king such that the king actually cared about him. And God gave him favor with the king. And Nehemiah said, O king, how could I be anything but sad? When I received the report about my people, that the walls of my city are broken down and the gates are burned and the people are doing badly and, and, and the construction of the temple is going poorly. How, how could I not be sad? And the king says to him, what would you like me to do for you? And so the scripture says, Nehemiah said, so I prayed to the Lord And I said to the king, and if you read the book of Nehemiah, you find he's always doing that. He's praying first, and then he's offering a petition at the horizontal level. And so he prayed to the Lord, and he said to the king, King, grant me a contingency of soldiers and letters from the king regarding the forest and the, and the wood and all the materials that we're going to need to rebuild the walls. And allow me to go and see about the welfare of my people. And to, with your permission and your authority, have access to the king's forest and the king's possession. That we can gain the materials we need to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so the king asked him, well, how long do you think you're going to be gone? And, and Nehemiah had an answer. 
He actually had been praying and thinking this through. He had a strategy, a plan. And so um, he was granted these letters from the king. And as he goes back to Jerusalem, Ezra uh, comes back during that period, and the two of them are working together, in essence, to build up the temple and the walls. But I find it fascinating that Nehemiah, when he gets there in Jerusalem, he does nothing for three days. What do you think Nehemiah was doing for three days? Nothing? I think he was praying. I think he was spending time talking to God. And then he gets up in the middle of the night, one night, with just a few of his most trusted uh, associates, and he says, I didn't have any animals with me except my, my mount, my steed, <laughs> which makes me wonder if they had dogs and cats and, you know, whatever else. But anyway, he gets up in the middle of the night, and he makes a trip around the whole city of Jerusalem in the night. It must have been a moonlit night. And he checks everything out, and he looks everything over. Now he spent three days in prayer and a whole night evaluating the situation. And then he gets the people together and he says to them, this is what God has put in my heart. And he has a plan and he is going to lead them in rebuilding the broken walls of Jerusalem. To me, Nehemiah is an incredibly wise man. And as God gives him direction and guidance... He begins to rebuild the walls. There's all kinds of opposition. You can read that if you wish uh, in the book of Nehemiah. But uh, it's one of those places, for example, you read uh, that when they came under attack um, and um, uh, threat by the people of the land, that he um, put them, half of them in guard duty, half of them in Mortar duty, not artillery mortar, but real mortar for bricks. And uh, they worked together with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem and completed them. And they continued to work on rebuilding the temple. And the people fortified their houses. And Jerusalem began to fare well because of the leadership of this priest Ezra and this king's servant and security chief Nehemiah as they put it all together. The post-exilic books of the scripture give us profound insight into the rescue of the Jewish people and the restoration of Jerusalem, the temple and the city walls. Within these major themes are numerous lessons of faith as we follow the examples of the heroine Esther and the heroes Ezra and Nehemiah. These are very key people in the history of Israel. And as Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi bring their prophecies in this post-exilic period,
Malachi has the final concluding word that the Jewish people hear in mass from God for the next 400 years until John the Baptist appears on the scene. Most of the time we refer to this as the 400 silent years. But you know, I don't think they were silent in the sense that no one had any relationship with God. I think there were people, in fact I know there were people who had a relationship with God. God always has his remnant. He always has his faithful. And the truth is, even though today we are praying and waiting for revival, and revival has not yet come, you can have revival. You can have a personal renewed intimacy with God. You don't have to wait for the great outpouring among all the church. You can have an outpouring of God upon yourself. Because when John the Baptist appears on the scene, and before that, when Christ is born and John is born a few months before him, people were looking for his coming. They were anticipating his coming. And when God appeared to Mary and to Elizabeth and to, um, come on, her husband's name. Who? Joseph. Zechariah. Thank you. You're right, Mary's husband was Joseph, but Zechariah was Elizabeth's husband. Oh, I love getting older. It's so much fun. Every once in a while I get these gaps in my brain and they don't connect. But anyway, they heard from God. They had a word from the Lord. And yes, the situation was pretty dramatic, but they also recognized his voice. I don't think people were without any relationship with God. It's just that God had not spoken to the whole nation. For 400 years, there had not been a prophet. There had not been a a, a spokesperson to call the whole nation to the word of the Lord. And so they waited, and they waited, and they waited. We are celebrating next weekend 500 years of the Reformation. Go back 400 years and we can recall the advent of the pilgrims coming to America. That's a long time ago, you know? A lot has happened in 400 years. A lot can happen. We've been through revivals and dry periods. But they had no revivals. They had no fresh outpouring of God upon all the nation until John the Baptist appears on the scene and begins to proclaim the coming of the Lord.
and one day points and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. For 2,000 years from the time of Abraham, God has been preparing for that moment. And Paul says, In the fullness of time, God sent his Son. You know, God is never late. He's never early. He's always right on time. And these periods of time, when I say 2,000 years, okay, give or take some. But friends, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus rose back into the heavens. And the angel said this one whom you have seen rise away from you today will come in like manner. Until then, you go and wait. And when the promise of the Father comes, then you will spread the word throughout the world. We're getting close. I wonder in the divine economy of time, if the millennium is not the seventh thousand years and we're close and I don't know if it would be 50 years 100 years 5 years I don't know but we have a task to do and Jesus says work for the night is coming when our work is done may we be the ones who herald the second coming of Jesus Christ May we be faithful when we're offered the opportunity to go back to the place of God's blessing. May we not be like those Babylonian Jews who said, I rather like it here in Babylon. I got everything I need. May we be like those who say, I will go and I will build and I will be a part of the remnant that remains faithful to our God. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Teach us again, build into our hearts the fact that you are a covenant-keeping God and that your promises are yes and amen, that you are always faithful to keep your word, that we can trust you completely. And no matter how long we wait, that Jesus is coming again. Do not say, as some do, where is the promise of His coming? <laughs> what a silly, ridiculous idea. For God is not slack concerning His promise, but long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. Lord, may we be about the task of Proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ near and far because we don't know who or when that last person will make that decision and the way for your coming will be complete. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.